This podcast is brain powered by the University of Sydney. We are controlling transmission. Sydney, Dr. Carl and Alan how are you there, science lovers, sleek geek fans? Adam Spencer and Dr. Carl with you to just yak on a bit of the old science stuff for a little while. Dr. Carl, last time we chatted, mm. um, we gave each other Christmas gifts. An incredible oh. coincidence. You gave me your latest book, Dr. Carl's Short Back in Science. I gave you my latest book, Adam oh. Spencer's World of Numbers. I've been looking on our Twitter stream at questions people send us, mm. and there's a couple of questions I'd like to answer that I think actually deal with material in our book. So I think it's a what bit a coincidence. of it's time for a bit of What's up? Twitter time. Yeah. Come on. Twitter. Dr. Carl. Bowley Boyle, Neil Bowl, asks mm-hmm. at Sleek Geeks, why doesn't the body attack artificial joints, etc., like it does? donor organs. Let's walk through this nice and slow. Rejection Mm. of donor organs is a real issue, isn't it, Carl? We've we've got to a point with transplants where we're great with the surgery, but sometimes one of the biggest problems is will the person receiving Mm. the new organ, will its body accept or reject it? Why does the body reject a new organ in the first place. Can we go back to there and then we'll talk artificial joints and We're talking like the immune system mm-hmm. and the immune system is basically you versus the rest of the world. And so it recognises things as either being Adam or non-Adam. And if it's non-Adam, it'll send out a combination of chemicals and cells to envelop it, sequester it away, push it away, kill it, whatever, to get rid of it. And so in the case of artificial organs, you're stuck with the fact that if you can't get an exact match, you don't have an identical twin, then you're going to have to, I'm fro- sorry to say, suppress the immune system. That is to impair the body's in, 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 intrinsic reaction to rejecting something that it recognises not itself. You suppress it for a while until what? Until the body's dealt with a new organ enough that it becomes... Or forever. Recognised. Wow. So it can be in between. It's, it's, it's a messy state. It's not perfect. Uh, obviously, where we want to go is with genetic technology, stem cells, CRISPR, etc., etc., so we can either remove the cancer or we can grow the new body part from scratch. That's where we're heading for. We're not there yet. And, and when your immune system is suppressed, that might help you not reject your new liver, etc., but ah. I presume it leaves you susceptible to all sorts of other infections and illnesses that mm. normally your body would deal with. Yeah, and in fact, your common case of immunosuppression is your highly trained athlete who yes. push themselves to such a high level that their immune system has suffered. So it's not as though they're in the peak of health. No, they're in the peak of state of being able to run the three-minute mile, four-minute mile, do the 100-metre sprint, do the swim, whatever, but not in good health. You often find before a major swimming event, like at the Olympics or something like that, and the team is there in camp ready to go, and one person comes down with the flu they instantly try and quarantine that person because it can run through the whole team because everyone else is at this state. point where they're, they're physically heightened in their ability to swim 200-metre butterfly, but the trade-off for that is the body's general health, mm. immune system response is suppressed. And so if you've got the flu and I'm even in the same dining hall as you, I'm massively more likely to get it than if I was just someone 
in normal health, sharing a bus with you, etc. The number of times that illnesses have gone through athletic teams or sporting teams in general, you suddenly realise, why, 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 why did half of the team get the bloody flu that week? They're in this immune-suppressed state. They're very immune-suppressed. So that's with regard to organs. So if it's an artificial ah. joint... Is, is, is the fact that it's not human tissue, it's plastic or titanium or something, does that, some, some people might think, well, the body's not going to reject that. It doesn't even look like a weird illness. It's a combination of that, plus they go for, in the case of titanium uh, and joints, the concept of osseointegration. Osseo means in bone? Bone, and integration, integration means to grow into. So on one hand, the... Um, titanium doesn't elicit, doesn't invoke much of a response from the immune system, but it has a coating of oxide on it, titanium oxide, and then, uh, this is how it was explained to me, I could be wrong, but it has a bubbly surface, and the bone grows into that bubbly surface, and then suddenly the potential worry of titanium has just gone. It's been completely enveloped by bone. The immune system doesn't see it, and it's also incredibly strong. So it can be something in the nature of the artificial substance you're bringing into the body that the body bonds with. Another line of research that I know people are pursuing, I read a while ago, was that if you take someone's stem cells, mm. if I take Dr. Carl stem cells, so cells that Dr. Carl will rec- body will recognise as Dr. Carl, and I coat the artificial organ in a layer of them and you create an artificial organ made out of a material that will bond with those stem cells... You can then insert that Ah. and the body sees the stem cells and is more likely to take the entire organ in. Ah, the, the, the whole rejection acceptance thing is incredibly complicated and it kind of came into the human ken accidentally during the Second World War. And I know about this because I've got a wonky eye, Dr Carl. Lay it on us. I was born with a wonky eye. I was operated on by the great Australian surgeon Fred Hollows. I've since done work with the Fred Hollows Foundation who go around the world trying to cure preventable blindness. And one of the things they do is they put an intraocular lens. So that's a lens inside the eye. That when, when, you, when your eye's been diseased by uh, glaucoma and uh, what's the other one called that old people uh, uh, Cataracts. Get? Cataracts. So the lens, which is normally totally clear, goes yellowish. And you have to remove that yellowish cloudy lens so the person can see again, well, the eye doesn't have the shape it should have. You insert a piece of plastic into the eye, the intraocular lens. For some reason, the eye doesn't reject those sort of things. Where did we initially observe that the eye won't reject plastics that are inserted into it? Um, By young men in fighter planes from both sides in the Second World War, flying around aeroplanes, having bullets hit the perspex cover. The perspex goes everywhere in their body and into the eye and uniquely did not set off an immune reaction. That was the amazing discovery. So they get all sorts of infections from bits of perspex that had lodged in their neck or their arm or their chest but chunks that were in their eye didn't seem to become infected. It was that... There was no immune system response. The immune system ignored it. ...discovery of the the trials and tribulations of pilots in World War II who'd been shot down led to the intraocular lens technology that now prevents blindness in the third world. Isn't that fascinating? It is amazing. And that's related to the fact that whenever you see a star on a flag, it has a point on it. It has a bunch of points. Now, this... 
is related to Dr. Carl Short back in science. I read this the other day. You've got a beautiful chapter in this, Why Are Stars Pointy? It's to do with the structure of the eye. Ex- explain to us why stars are pointy. Okay. When you, when you see the naked star itself close up uh, with a telescope, and, well, you can't normally get very close. Let me rephrase that. We know that stars are big spherical objects and they don't have points sticking out of them. Yes. But if you get the Hubble Space Telescope and you point the Hubble Space Telescope at some part of space, you see a galaxy, and there happen to be a few stars in the foreground, those stars always have four points. Mm. And that's because... There's sort of a big white or yellowish dot at the centre and then points coming off. Four. Only four. Because it turns out that the secondary mirror on the Hubble Space Telescope is held up by four sticks or rods. So the light comes into the telescope, goes past these, the secondary mirror, the little one, goes down, hits the big mirror, and then is focused onto the little mirror. And the little mirror, the secondary mirror, is held on by four little sticks. If it was held up by five sticks... Stars would have five points. It was held up by three sticks. It would have stars would have three points. Is that because those sticks, what they they, they bend the light? They 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 effectively bend, bend the, the light. light that they is bend hitting the that light. lens. Yeah, and it's called diffraction. And so, with the human eye, if you go out at night and you look at stars and you think, well, I, in my heart, I know that they're spherical, but. Bugger me, I'm I'm seeing it with five points. And the answer is, yes, you are. And here's the other weird thing. One eye might see it with five points and the other with six. Oh, you're freaking me out now. You're freaking, man. Why is that happening? Because in the lens, um, the lens has little tiny lines in it that correspond to the little sticks or rods that hold up the secondary mirror of the Hubble Space Telescope. So when your lens is formed in utero, which means inside the uterus, the cells grow together from the left and the right and the top and the bottom. They all meet in the middle. And so at the front of the lens, you've got a Y-shaped structure where they all fuse, pointing upwards with a Y upwards. And the back of the lens, you've got a Y-shaped structure pointing down. So you've got a maximum of six arms. And so depending on how big these joins are, they're called sutures, you'll see either six or five or four or three or two or one point to a star. And so you literally that's why we have stars with points on flags. And so the nursery rhyme twinkle twinkle little star how I wonder what you are unbeknown to the person who wrote the, the nursery rhyme which might have been Mozart right might have in the music for it the twinkle twinkle belies the perception we get because of the structure of our eye not actually the star itself twinkling. That's right. The star does not twinkle. It's the oh. moving air that makes it twinkle. Then the sutures in your eye give it these wonderful little structures. You can read more about that in Dr. Carl's short back in science. But on that topic, let me hit you with a question, Carl. Mm. So twinkle, twinkle, little star is actually de facto an explanation of the structure of the human eye and the Hubble Space Telescope. And the atmosphere and okay. the stars, yeah. Jack and Jill. They went up a hill. Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pile of water. water. Jack, Jack fell down, down and broke his crown. And Jill came tumbling after. What historical event does the nursery rhyme Jack and Jill tell us about? This is from Adam Spencer's World of Numbers. You haven't read this far in. I haven't read this far. Well, (laughs) certainly not the discovery or the appreciation of gravity. No. Uh, Give me a hint. Give me a hint. Give me a hint. Uh, It's to do with what a Jack and a Jill are. They're not human beings. they? They are also... What, parts of a ship? No, very good. Good guess. No? It's to do with liquids. 
No, no, no. Lay it on me. What, what page is this on? Okay, so if you turn to page uh, 114 of World of Numbers... These, this book is beautifully laid out. Jack and Jill turn out to be political activists, Dr. Carl. No. So a Jill or a gill... A oh, gill! ...is a unit of volume. Way back in the Middle Ages, it's still used to measure some forms of um, alcohol in some jurisdictions. In Ireland, for example, a gill is a standard measure you can order. Uh, different between the US and Britain, as often is the case with your historical uh, measurements. But a gill is about half a cup or four fluid ounces, right? And a jack is a measurement. A jack or jackpot is uh, about half a jill. A jill is twice a jack. When King Charles I came into power and wanted to raise taxes right. and increase his tax haul from alcohol, he reduced the size of a jack. He reduced so, the size? So that he would get more tax. Because people would still drink the same for, amount. For the same amount. of So the amount of tax remained for a smaller jack. As the size of the jack decreased, the jill, which is a double jack, obviously decreased in size as well. So as jack came down, the jill came tumbling after. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. So Jack and Jill is actually a song of historical political activism opposing the oppressive tax regimes of Charles I. And we all know that the purpose of a government is to tax its people and if they fail to pay up, to put them in jail. Oh, you deep political activist, Adam. Well, uh, in January uh, 1649, the people said to uh, King Charles, well, you might be needing that head. <laughs> on your body anymore. But anyway, there you go. There wow. you go. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All in Adam Spencer's World of Numbers, available at adamspencer.com.au. Now, on to another question from Carl. Terry Dunlan asks, mm-hmm. this is great. Terry, Terry likes a deep question. Why does a photon have no mass, yet it travels at the speed it does? Question mark. E equals MC squared? Question mark. Hashtag science. Great question ah. to absolute geeks, Terry Dunlan. What's going on with all that, Carl? Ah, okay. So Einstein said that if an object let's go has back one mass, step. What's a photon? Okay, well then we go back even one more step. Light is a wave when it travels from here to there in the vacuum of space, and it is a photon when it is born or dies. Is so, this called the wave-particle duality? Duality. Yeah. So light is both a wave... And when it's travelling. ..and a particle... ..when it stops and is being re-emitted. So light is a wave when it leaves the surface of the sun and it travels totally unimpeded for eight minutes and then in the atmosphere it runs into a molecule, usually nitrogen, because that's the most plentiful molecule in the atmosphere, and it is absorbed. And at that moment of being absorbed, it is now a photon. It then hangs around for a brief instant and then it is re-emitted as a photon. And the moment it is re-emitted, it changes instantly from a photon into something which is a wave travelling at the speed of light. Really deep, heavy stuff. Yeah. And so Einstein told us that if something is travelling closer and closer to the speed of light, three things happen. The mass increases, and not just until it's really big or the mass of the Earth or the mass of the galaxy – it increases to infinity, so it has infinite mass. The length that's that's getting heavy. That, that's big. That's that's he- really where your friends so your friends have got to step in at that stage. <laughs> and so I'm going to be honest, you've let yourself go a bit. Infinity's just you're too much. You're talking mass. infinitely massy. Yeah. 
and then the time slows down to zero, so the clock slows down to zero. So your friends don't even have time to tell you that you're now infinitely massive. And your length uh, shrivels to zero in the direction of travel, so you have no length. I've felt that before. Right, so with regard to the photon, you have two different concepts there. You talk about mass, but then we realise that there's a zero rest mass and a finite relativistic mass. So a photon at rest has no mass, and then when you crank it up to the speed of light, it has a certain mass, which is not infinite. It's called its relativistic mass. I recommend that you go to Wikipedia and enjoy the concept of rest versus relativistic mass for a few hours. Indeed. How this ties into my world of numbers is... How, Dr Adam? I've got a little chapter that I call 61 Things We Know Exist... Brackets, the standard model. And a few we really hope do. Oh, Close this is brackets. so beautiful. If you, this is amazing. If you think about, I mean, 80 years feels like a long time in terms of a human life and, you know, that sort of stuff. But in terms of the history of human thought, 80 years isn't very long. It was only 80 years ago in the early 1930s, correct me if I'm wrong here, Carl, yeah. we knew about electrons, protons neutrons. And that was pretty That well. was it. We yeah. knew we had it. We knew that... Even getting that knowledge was difficult. And we knew that atoms had a nucleus made up of your protons and neutrons. We knew there were electrons that were part of the atom. We had a bit of an understanding that one element could have different numbers of protons. You could have ions and things like that. Yeah, you'd have more protons, periodic table, etc. But in terms of the fundamental particles, we knew things were made up of electrons, protons and neutrons, and that's it. Mm. Fast forward 80 years, that list of three has grown to 61, and we seem to be on the verge of probably pushing it a little bit higher than 61. What a phenomenal rate of increase of knowledge. To go from three fundamental particles to 60 plus and probably more mm. in the space of a human lifetime or a couple of careers worth of research back-to-back is fascinating. Uh, is, is amazing. Now, is, is number 61 the Higgs boson? Yeah, you got, yeah well, you go, you go, you've got your quarks. That was the most recent one. Your leptons and your bosons. And the Higgs is the most recent boson discovered. But from what I understand, the energy level at which we've found the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider suggests two things. One, there's probably other stuff out there because the Higgs didn't exist at an energy level that was enough to sort of seal everything off, unify everything. Mm. And two, they're wondering, did the Higgs boson we saw, was it an example of the only type of Higgs boson there is or are there possibly more than one, and I've heard the number five Mm. bandied around as types of Higgs bosons. And the astonishing thing about this in this so-called standard model, it's the best thing we have at the moment. It's almost certainly wrong in a few ways, and our children and our grandchildren will be using devices based on this knowledge, and they will be as gods to us with their abilities to travel and communicate. When we talked about bosons, a photon is a Ooh, boson. don't know, don't know. I think a photon's... Co- okay, I'll believe you on that one. When, when light hits a solar panel, the boson that is called a photon helps us understand how the light generates energy. Oh, 
They learn something every day. This this is a fantastic book. I just learned something, Dr. Adam. And they recently discovered, how cool is this? They recently discovered an arrangement that quarks can take on called a pentaquark. Oh, that was a weird one, wasn't it? Five quarks just hanging. Because normally, the way I remember it is that a proton is positive, and so it's got three ups, two ups and one down uh, in the type of quark. So quarks have got funny names like up and down. I mean, what sort of name is an up and another one Mm. a down? Okay, and then the neutron is um, two downs and an up. And so you've got three quarks together, but to have five quarks forming a particle? Do you know where the word or the spelling of the word quark comes from? Is it true that it came from Ulysses, the book by... Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. Finnegan's Wake, was it? Murray Gell Mann, who discovered the quark, based the spelling on James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, three quarks for Muster Mark. Sure, he has not got much of a bark, and sure, any he has, it's all beside the mark. Three quarks, Q-U-A-R-K. Well done, James Joyce. And apparently there's a cheese called quark in France, I'm guessing. I wouldn't be surprised. They don't have anything. They love that sort of stuff. You with Adam Spencer and Dr Carl, the sleek geeks. Dr Carl's short back and science is in all good bookstores now. And let's be honest, Carl, you're a good chance to get it in average bookstores as well. Even ones of questionable moral values. Indeed. Find out how banana pills make you slip over on them. Well, really, Adam Spencer's World of Numbers is available through adamspencer.com.au. If you want to send us questions like those two lovely Sleek Geek fans did, just send it to at Sleek Geeks on Twitter. We love taking your questions. We'll be back with another episode of the Sleek Geeks podcast soon, and we'll do exactly that. Sleek Cakes.